Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm flying solo for today's episode, but I promise you it's not for lack of effort. Sometimes scheduling can just be a little bit tricky but I'd rather give you something instead of nothing, so hopefully you don't mind my ramblings. I have two parts for you on today's show. In part one, I'll review our match against Sassuolo on Friday, and in part two, I'll preview the first leg of our Champions League round of 16 tie against Eintracht Frankfurt. So let's begin with the Sassuolo match, which was played in Reggio Emilia, But there were so many Napoli fans in attendance that it looked and sounded like a home match. And by all accounts, the home crowd were very welcoming. So that was very nice to hear. As I'm sure you're already aware, Napoli won 2-0 on goals from who else? Kvicek Paraschelia and Victor Osimen. Once again, both scored wonder goals, which they've done fairly consistently for us this season. Cavara opened the scoring in the 12th minute. Matthias Oliveira slightly underhit his pass to the Georgian, but he oh so casually chipped the ball past Maxime Lopez. Then he sidestepped the slide tackle from Armand Lauriente, tiptoed at the edge of the area, waiting for the right moment to shoot, and then nutmegged Martin Ehrlich with a shot into the bottom corner. After the goal, I tweeted out one word Cavara Donna. This is exactly why he was given that nickname. He picked the ball up at midfield and made something out of nothing. That was his 10th goal of the season to go along with 9 assists, so he is now just 1 assist away from the NBA-style double-double. I was watching the Inter match on Sunday, and when the score was still 1-1, the commentators on the English World feed 
mentioned how Inter don't have a player like Cavada who can win a match for you when you need him to. Inter ultimately won that match, but it certainly wasn't easy for them. Isaac's success had a glorious chance for Udinez and completely botched the shot, and then, as we often see in football, Inter came back the other way and scored. As it so happens, we have two players who can take a match into their own hands and win it for us. The other, of course, is Victor Osimen. He doubled our lead in the 33rd minute with another brilliant solo effort. He outmuscled Ruan Tresoldi and Martin Erlich to get to the long ball from Emir Rachmani. Again, he showed his strength to hold up the ball in the area. And then he caught Andrea Consigli off guard with a shot from a very acute angle. Consigli didn't exactly cover himself in glory on this play. He was clearly expecting the cross and left that little bit of space between himself and the post. But that was just a ridiculous finish from Osimen. Even if he was completely unmarked, it would have been difficult for Osiman to squeeze the ball into that window from such a narrow angle. But Victor did it, starting with his back to the goal, then he turned towards the byline, and he had a defender draped all over him. Aside from the finish itself, it was the physicality and the ingenuity from Osiman that made that goal so impressive. The physicality was what made it different from the goal that Caracas scored against Roma in the 1989-90 season. You might have seen that video doing the rounds on social media. Caracas did not have a defender anywhere near him, but the ingenuity and the quality of finish were very similar. Caracas dummied goalkeeper Giovanni Cervone with a head fake, so Caracas caught the keeper off guard in a slightly different way. And then both of them scored from a seemingly impossible angle. Caraca was practically on the byline, and he shot with the instep of his right boot from the right wing, so that ball is naturally going to curl away from the goal. Either way, they are both goals that will be remembered for a very, very long time. For Victor, it was his league-leading 18th goal of the season, it was his 14th goal in the 16 matches that he's played since returning from his thigh injury. With that goal, he became the first Napoli player ever to score in 7 consecutive league matches, and every single one of the 9 goals he scored during that stretch have been from open play. Curiously, of all the chances that Osiman had to score in this match, and there were many which I'll describe in a moment, this one was the most difficult to convert. He easily could have scored a hat-trick in this match. He hit the upright about 7 minutes before the goal. That was an equally ridiculous play from Osiman. I'm not sure if you've picked up on this, but he has a way of fooling defenders by making it seem like he's going to go up for the ball in the air, then he ducks underneath and lets it bounce. And most of the time, the defender bites and goes up for what they think will be a 50-50 ball, and then in some cases... They get to the ball, but in others, like on this one, they don't, and then Victor can control the ball on the bounce. He then shattered Ehrlich's ankles before striking the ball into the upright with his weaker left foot. In the 35th minute, he got behind the Sassuolo back line after Lobotka dinked the ball into the area, but he skied the volley over the bar with his left. Two minutes later, he came close with a header after a ridiculous cross from Cavada with the outside of his right boot, but Ruan did just enough to disrupt the shot. 
And then he had two great chances early in the second half. Five minutes after the restart, Labotka stepped up to win back possession and Cavada played a perfectly weighted through ball for Osimhen to run onto. He tried to flick the ball towards the far post, but he didn't connect properly and it finished wide of the goal. That finish should have been much easier than the one he scored with. Two minutes later, Rachmani spotted Labotka at the edge of the area and he again slipped it through to Osimhen. But Consili made a very good save to keep Sassuolo in the match at that point. And finally, Osimhen had another chance in the 71st minute after yet another Lobotka interception on the counter press. And Gisa played it to Victor at the edge of the area. It looked like he might have touched the ball a little bit too wide, but he turned and lashed the ball into the outside of the side netting. That is what is so scary about Victor. He seems to turn even half chances into actual quality chances like with the goal he scored against Roma earlier in the season and like the goal he scored in this match. So it's actually quite remarkable that he only scored one goal in this match. He played 85 minutes before walking very gingerly off the pitch. Naturally that worried a lot of Napoli fans. Fortunately by all accounts including from Victor himself on Twitter he seems to be okay. It looks like he was just fatigued. He also completed the full group training on Sunday. However, this did highlight the one thing that I think we can be critical of Luciano Spalletti for. As great of a tactician as he is, he seems to wait a really long time to make some of his changes. He made his first change in the 58th minute, so that was fine. He replaced Politano with Zielinski and moved Elmas to the right wing. Then in the 78th minute, he replaced Anguisa with Ndombele and Cavada with Lozano. By the way, this match was the perfect example of just how versatile Elif Elmas is. He started in the midfield, then he moved to the right wing, and then he moved to the left wing. But Spalletti didn't make his final two changes until the 85th minute when he replaced Osimen with Simeone and Elmas with Alessio Zerbin. Now I could understand leaving the regular starters out there if it was a tight match, or if we didn't have a deep bench, but with a two-goal lead before a huge match that is only four days later, and with a guy like Simeone on the bench, there was really no need to leave Osiman out there for so long. Even with only five minutes of playing time, Simeone still managed to find the back of the goal. Unfortunately, that goal was chalked off by the semi-automated offside technology. The goal was inconsequential, so no one's really talking about it, but something needs to be done about this. I'm all for using new technology, but we've already had numerous instances where a player is called offside by millimeters, and in some cases, I'm not sure how reliable this technology really is. We saw Milan lose two goals against Sassuolo, we saw Juventus lose a goal against Fiorentina, and now we saw Napoli lose a goal against Sassuolo. This goal was chalked off because Chucky Lozano's shoulder was fractionally ahead of the last defender's toe, and I can't help but question how accurately a human or a machine can identify the exact point where a shoulder ends and an arm begins. I tweeted about this on Saturday after watching Bologna Sampdoria, but I feel like we've gone from giving penalty kicks for any kind of contact in the area to now actively trying to take goals away. Bologna won that match 2-1, and neither of Bologna's goals seemed to violate any rules, yet we had to sit through lengthy reviews only for both goals to be confirmed. I know officiating will never be perfect, and there will always be subjectivity, 
but I think we need to strike the right balance between getting decisions correct and maintaining the entertainment value of the sport because it kind of feels like we're ruining the sport a little bit. This is especially true for the fans that are in the stadium sitting there for 3, 4, 5 minutes at a time with only the slightest idea of what is going on. It's gotten to the point where you're almost hesitant to celebrate a goal because you want to wait and see if there will be a review first. Now I don't know what the right solution is, maybe there needs to be a time limit for these reviews, or at least for certain reviews, and if the decision is still not clear by that point, then you just stick to the decision that was made on the pitch. I don't want to be that person who says North Americans do everything right, but I do like the idea of an inconclusive call in the NFL. If the officials reviewing the play don't have clear evidence to reverse the decision on the field, then the call on the field stands. And there's a general acceptance from everyone, from the league to the players to the fans, that there will be some human error sometimes, and after watching the replays over and over again after the game is over and scrutinizing them, we might find that evidence that could have overturned the decision, but that's okay, at least we're not slowing the game to a halt and ruining the experience for everyone. Anyhow, those are just my thoughts on the VAR review, you're welcome to agree or disagree. Going back to those two special goals from Kabata and Osimen, I am slightly concerned that we've become a little bit too reliant on these moments of brilliance. If you look at our last four wins, many of our goals were either the result of mistakes by the opponent or great individual efforts. Both of the goals we scored against Roma were ridiculous finishes, first the chest to thigh to volley from Osimen, and then the winner from Simeone with his left into the top corner. All three goals against Spezia were the direct result of Spezia mistakes, though I'm being a little bit unfair here because other than the handball, which I'll come back to later, the other two mistakes were the result of Napoli's intense high press. One of those three goals was another example of Osimhen's great ingenuity that was the higher than Ronaldo vertical leap. Two of the three goals against Cremonese were excellent solo efforts as well, the opener from Cavada, which again he created out of nothing, and then the third goal with the finish from Elmas. I might be nitpicking at this point, but I would like to see us score some more of those beautiful team goals that we've become accustomed to seeing this season. Now don't get me wrong, I'll take a goal any way it comes, and I would be perfectly fine if we keep scoring these wonder goals. I just don't want us to become dependent on them, because that's not really a sustainable strategy. So those were my thoughts on Napoli's performance. Let me give you a few of my thoughts on how Sassuolo played. I talked about Cavada earlier. He wasn't the only impressive left winger in this match. I thought Lauriente had a fantastic match for Sassuolo. Di Lorenzo certainly had his hands full on Napoli's right side. On another day, the Frenchman might have scored a brace and both chances were immediately after Napoli scored. The first was in the 14th minute, so two minutes after the Cavada goal. Rogerio played a long ball forward and Laurienta made a brilliant first touch to both take the ball down and get past Di Lorenzo all in one motion. He cut in on his right and like Cavada did to Erlich, Laurienta nutmegged Rachmani with his shot, but like Osiman earlier in the half, he was denied by the upright. Then in the 40th minute, he finished off a pass from Davide Fratesi, but the goal was ruled out by the VAR. On the English world feed, Massimo Paganin was fairly adamant that that goal should have stood, and Patrick Hendrick correctly pointed out that no Napoli players protested the decision, including Oliveira, so that might have been an indication that even Napoli players 
didn't see anything wrong. Perhaps it was a slightly harsh decision, but I do understand the decision. For those of you who might be new to the sport, the offside rule in football can be a little bit funny sometimes. It's not as black and white as it is in some North American sports, like hockey for example. In hockey, if the puck is played into the opposition zone and a player is anywhere in that zone before the puck crosses the blue line, then it's considered offside. That's not how it works in football. In football, the player is considered offside if he is both behind the last defender and if he is involved in the play. The other difference in football, of course, is that there is no fixed line on the pitch. The line moves with the last defender, so the offside is measured from the moment the pass is played, not from the moment the ball crosses the line. The most common offside is when a player is behind the last defender when a pass is played to him. Those are fairly easy to identify, though as I mentioned earlier, they can sometimes be very difficult to measure, even with the use of technology. Where the offside becomes a little bit more subjective is when the player who is behind the last defender is not the recipient of the pass. Then we have to determine whether he was involved in the play. The obvious example of a player not being involved in the play is when he is walking back on the opposite side of the pitch and is nowhere near the ball. Another common example is when the player behind the last defender is blocking the view of the goalkeeper. In that case, he is deemed to have interfered with the play and is considered to be offside. The logic here is that had the player not been there, the keeper would have had a better view of the ball and would have been more likely to make the save. In this instance, Gregoire Defrel was deemed to be offside because he clearly bumped into Matthias Oliveira immediately before Oliveira missed the clearance. Oliveira just missed the ball, so I think the logic behind the decision would have been that had Defrel not been in offside position, he wouldn't have bumped into Oliveira, and Oliveira might have cleared that ball to safety. So Lauriente and Sassuolo came very close to scoring twice in this match, their XG was 0.7, so if this match was played over and over, they probably would have scored a goal. So credit to them for that. I think we should also give credit to Alessio Dionisi for having Sassuolo play their game rather than simply sit back in a low block. They often defended with 10 men behind the ball, but it was more of a mid block than a low block, and on occasion, particularly when we had the ball inside our own half, they even pressed high. However, I think that created a bit of a dilemma for Sassuolo. When they defended in the mid-block, there was still too much space on the park. That's precisely why clubs defend us in a low block, because it's more compact, so when we get into the final third, there's very little space for us to pass the ball. With the movement of our midfielders, especially Stanislav Lobotka, who once again showed how critical he is to the system that we play, we're able to play through the mid-block rather easily. And that's before our wingers drop deep and give us numerical superiority like Cavada did on the opening goal. On the other hand, when they pressed high, we were quick to recognize the press, which of course means there's more space downfield, and we immediately played the long ball over the top. That's what Rachmani did on the play where Osiman hit the upright, and then it was Rachmani again who played the long ball forward, on OC men's goal. Shout out to Dionysi as well for actually acknowledging that Napoli deserved to win this match. I feel like so many opposition coaches said that they deserved more 
after we beat them this season. Stefano Pioli brought it up in every press conference he did for a while after the Milan match. Meanwhile, his team was dropping points left and right. Jose Mourinho said the same thing. In truth, they were the two coaches who were probably justified in saying that, but there were many other coaches who said they deserved a better result against us when in fact they did not. The last thing I want to quickly touch on is the picture that was going around showing how we lined up on the halfway line. I'm not sure why so many people were surprised by this because we actually do it quite often. As far as I'm concerned, this is a set piece in the sense that it is a play that's been designed by Spalletti and that I am certain we practice regularly in training. I described that play in our Spezia review pod so I won't describe it again, but it's the same play that we used to win the penalty kick immediately after the start of the second half in that match. So, with this win, we now have 62 points out of a possible 69. Pretty much every top club won this round. Only Atalanta, Lasso, Inter are still 15 points behind. If Juve were to get their points back, they would also be 15 points behind us. Roma and Milan are still 18 points behind. Lazio are 20 points back. And now Atalanta are 21 points back. Technically, the magic number has now gone down from 12 to 11, but like I said last time, it's probably less than that. With such a big lead at the top of the table, we should be able to focus more on the Champions League, which resumes on Tuesday, and I'll preview that match in part two. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at Patreon.com forward slash Forza Napoli pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and at our website at forzanapolipress.com. Okay, next, let's preview our Champions League round of 16 match against Eintracht Frankfurt on Tuesday. I was supposed to be joined by one of the hosts of the Hey Eintracht Frankfurt podcast, but unfortunately he fell ill before we could record. So I will do my best to preview this match based on the research that I've done. Shout out to Frankfurt fan Martin Mulcahy on Twitter for helping me out with this. He provided some excellent input. The guys from the Hey Eintracht Frankfurt podcast still did a short preview on their show, so be sure to check that episode out. Dom from Napoli Talk made a preview video with a Frankfurt fan, and Dan and Mario from Napoli Nation TV previewed the match in part 3 of episode 6 of their show, so if you put all of that together along with this preview, of course, I think you'll be pretty much set for this match. What I found very interesting when I was researching for this preview is just how much these two clubs have in common, so I will point out those similarities as we work through the preview. But I want to start with Frankfurt's journey to the Champions League, which really started a couple of seasons ago. 
Prior to the 2020-21 season, Frankfurt were hovering around the middle of the Bundesliga table, sometimes finishing a little bit higher, sometimes finishing a little bit lower. But in Adi Hooter's third season in charge, they finished fifth in the Bundesliga, and therefore they qualified for the Europa League. Surprisingly, Hooter walked away from the club after that season ended. He said he wanted to leave on a high note, so he exercised a clause in his contract that allowed him to leave with two seasons still remaining. He then signed a three-year contract with Bundesliga rivals Borussia Mönchengladbach, which didn't work out so well. After Gladbach's worst finish in the German top flight in over a decade, Hooter and Gladbach mutually agreed to part ways. Hooter's replacement at Frankfurt was Oliver Glasner. While Hooter basically got sacked, Glasner led Frankfurt to their first European Cup win since they won the UEFA Cup in 1979-80. Of course, the last time Napoli enjoyed European glory was also in the UEFA Cup 10 years after Frankfurt did it. It was quite the impressive run as well. Frankfurt finished top of Group D with 3 wins and 3 draws, and that was in a group that included Olympiacos and Fenerbahce, who are both perennial contenders in their respective domestic competitions. The knockout phase was incredibly dramatic for the Germans. First, they eliminated Real Betis in the round of 16. After winning the first leg 2-1, they conceded the equalizer in the 180th minute of the tie. That forced extra time. It looked like the match was going to go to a penalty shootout, but Betis scored an own goal in the 121st minute of the second leg, or the 211th minute of the tie, and Frankfurt advanced. Next, they played against Barcelona, who had eliminated Napoli in the intermediate stage before beating Galatasaray in the round of 16. The first leg finished 1-1, but Frankfurt raced out to a 3-0 lead in the second leg. They gave up two goals in stoppage time, but after Frankfurt's third of the match, it was never really in doubt. Then, Frankfurt scored in the first minute of the first leg of their semi-final tie against West Ham, which they won 2-1. Then they won 1-0 in the second leg after Aaron Cresswell was shown a straight red card for a foul on Jens Petter Hauge, former Milan player. Remarkably, it was Cresswell's second red card of the tournament after being sent off in the first leg of their quarterfinal match against Lyon. Finally, Frankfurt played against Rangers in the final. It ended in the most dramatic of fashion, the penalty shootout. Frankfurt converted all five of their shots while ex-Juventus player Aaron Ramsey was the only player to miss for Rangers. So that is how Eintracht Frankfurt qualified for the Champions League, and as it turned out, the only way they were going to qualify was by winning the Europa League. That's because Frankfurt finished 11th in the Bundesliga last season, and that is because it was a bit of a transition year. With Glasner taking over, they really struggled out of the gates. They didn't collect as many points as they would have liked to in the first 8 or 9 rounds of the season. But that's not to say that Frankfurt don't have talent. Much like Napoli, Frankfurt have a very clear sporting structure and a very clear approach to being successful. That is, they scout very well and they tend to sign two types of players. Relative unknowns who they can develop into stars and sell for big profits and experienced players who may have gone slightly astray in either case They don't spend a lot of money when they bring players into the club. They bought Luka Jovic for about $22 from Benfica, which is a pretty hefty price tag for Frankfurt, 
but they sold him to Real Madrid a few seasons later for $63 million. They bought Sebastian Haller for $7 million from FC Utrecht and sold him to West Ham for $50 million. They bought Andre Silva from Milan for $3 million and sold him to RB Leipzig for $23 million. And they bought Philippe Kostic from Hamburg for $6 million before selling him to Juventus for $13 million. Of course, this is the same approach that has worked so well for Napoli over the years. We bought Pocho Lavezzi from San Lorenzo for 5.6 million and flipped him to PSG for 30 million. We bought Edinson Cavani for 12 million from Palermo before selling him to PSG for 64.5 million. We bought Gonzalo Higuain for a massive price tag of 39 million euros, but then we sold him to Juventus for 90 million. And we bought Kalidou Koulibaly for just under 7 million euros. And after about a decade with the club, we still sold him to Chelsea for 38 million. In terms of experienced players, Frankfurt bought Kevin Trapp from PSG for 7 million euros, Sebastian Rosa from Dortmund for 4 million, and they this year got Mario Goza from PSV for 3 million. Both clubs have continued with this approach. Let me quickly walk you through some of the key players from that Europa League final and what Frankfurt paid for them. They got center backs Tuta from Sao Paulo's youth team for 1.8 million and Evan Indica from Auxerre for 5.5 million. In the midfield, they got Jabril So from Young Boys for 10 million and Daichi Kamada from Sagan Tosu in the J League for only 4.5 million. And up top, they got Jesper Lundstrom from Bronsby for 7 million and Rafael Bore from River Plate on a Bosman. That squad was then augmented with the likes of Philippe Max, who joined on loan from PSV, Jorve Smolcic, purchased from Rijeka for 2.5 million, Mario Goza, who I already mentioned, Christian Jakic, who they purchased from Dinamo Zagreb for 3.5 million, Junior Mbimbe, on loan from PSG, Lucas Alario, purchased from Bayer Leverkusen for 6 million, and the sparkling gem in the crown, Randall Kolumwani, who joined on a Bosman from Nantes. That is just incredible business. Even if you include Jens Peter Hauga, who was purchased from Milan for 10 million euros and then loaned to Genk, their net spend this summer was only 11.2 million euros. Goza and Kolomwani alone have more than justified the spend, and it's clear to me that the objective this summer was to add depth to the squad. Guys like Smolcic, Jakic, and Eladio are not regular starters. But with Frankfurt in the quarterfinals of the DFB Pokal in the knockout stage of the Champions League and competing for Champions League qualification next season, these guys play a very important role. It's not dissimilar to how we went out and purchased Kim Min Jae and Javicha Kvaraskelia, who are regular starters, but also Leo Ostegaard, Tangi Ndombele, Giovanni Simeone, and Giacomo Raspadori for depth. Had we not been knocked out of the Coppa Italia so early in the competition, then they would be the guys we'd rely on to give our regular starters some rest. Now, one thing I've been debating with myself is whether Frankfurt's Europa League experience is an advantage for them because that win was not a flash in the pan. In 2018-19, Frankfurt reached the semi-finals of the Europa League and lost to Chelsea in penalty kicks. That was a completely different squad, but the club is developing a reputation for being a strong team in the cup format. They also won the DFB Pokal, which is the German Cup, in 2017-18. Meanwhile, since winning the UEFA Cup 34 years ago, the furthest we've gone in a European competition is the semifinals of the Europa League, but we only did that once. 
we were knocked out by Dnipro in the 2014-15 edition of the competition. On the other hand, we have significantly more experience playing in the Champions League. We've played in the Champions League in 7 of the last 12 seasons, and this will be our fourth attempt to reach the quarterfinals. We've also won our share of domestic cups, including three Coppa Italia and one Supercoppa Italiana in the last 11 years. Actually, that is another similarity between these two clubs. Their trophy cabinets are very similar. We've won two league titles, while Frankfurt have one league title and one Europa League win. Both clubs have won the UEFA Cup once. We have six Coppa Italia to Frankfurt's five DFB Pokal, and both clubs have won the second division once. Now, this is Frankfurt's first ever Champions League, but it's been an excellent debut so far. They finished second in Group D with 10 points. That was only one point behind Tottenham. It's been another dramatic tournament for them. Going into match day 6, Tottenham led the group on 8 points, Sporting and Frankfurt were level on 7 points, and Marseille were on 6 points, so any team could have won the group and any team could have finished runner-up. Tottenham beat Marseille to win the group, so Frankfurt had to beat Sporting in Portugal because Sporting won the first leg in Germany. Sporting opened the scoring and kept the lead until about the hour mark, so it wasn't looking good for Frankfurt. But Kamada equalized in the 62nd minute from the penalty spot, and Kolomwani scored the winner 10 minutes later. Kolomwani's finish was very similar to Victor Osimhen's winner against Roma in Serie A, that powerful strike from an acute angle across the face of the goal and into the side netting at the far post. Osimhen's was from a bit further out, but they were both lovely strikes. Kolomwani and Osimhen actually have very similar qualities. I wouldn't be surprised in the least if he is on Juntoli's list of potential replacements for Osimhen. However, I think that will only happen if we can convince Osimhen to stay at Napoli for one more season, because personally, I think Kolomwani will stay at Frankfurt for one more season, but that is also debatable. So that is how Frankfurt's got to the knockout stage, which means no matter who wins this tie, there will be a club playing in the Champions League quarterfinal for the very first time. Okay, so let's move on to projected starting lineups, and then I'll tell you a little bit about Frankfurt's style of play, some players to watch out for, and we'll close the preview with a prediction. For Frankfurt, Oliver Glasner typically lines up in a 3-4-2-1 formation with Kevin Trapp in goal. Tuta and Ndika pretty much start every match, so I have to think they will start here. Jakic completed the back three on the weekend against Werder Bremen, so I'm inclined to think that Makoto Hasebe will play on Tuesday, but Smocic is certainly another option. I think Daichi Hamada and Jabril So have to start in the center of the midfield. With Mbimbe still recovering from an ankle injury and Luca Pellegrini returning to Italy to play for Lazio, Glasner has been forced to shuffle his wingers around a little bit. I think we'll see Philip Max on the left side and one of Aurelio Buta or Ansgar Nauf on the right side. I am leaning more towards Nauf to get the start. And then the front three are pretty much set in stone with Jesper Lindstrom and Mario Goza playing behind Randall Kolomuani. For Napoli, I think we'll see a pretty standard starting 11 from Luciano Spalletti. He'll line up in his usual 4-3-3 with Alex Medet in goal. Amir Rachmani and Kim Minjay will start at center back while captain Giovanni Di Lorenzo will start at right back. For the longest time, I've been preaching that Matthias Oliveira is our Champions League left back, 
But Spalletti put a wrench in that on Friday with Oliveira playing against Sassuolo and getting beat on that Laureante goal that was disallowed. I'm now fairly convinced that Mario Rui will start at left back on Tuesday. Perhaps Spalletti thinks that Mario Rui matches up better tactically against Frankfurt and therefore started Oliveira on Friday. I'm not expecting any surprises in the midfield with Stanislav Lobotka playing as the regista behind Piotr Zielinski, who will return to the starting 11, and Andre Frank Zambuangisa. Just like with left back, I think the decision to start Matteo Politano against Sassuolo tells us that Chucky Lozano will get the start on Tuesday, so I am expecting a front three with Javicha Kvaraskhelia on the left, Chucky Lozano on the right, and Victor Osimen at striker. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let me tell you a little bit about Frankfurt's playing style, at least as far as I can gather from reading about them and talking to Frankfurt fans. First, Frankfurt are excellent at pressing the opposition. Personally, I think that actually plays into our strengths. Dom mentioned this in his preview on Napoli talk as well. The Champions League tends to be more open than Serie A does. As I mentioned in part 1, it's quite common for Serie A clubs to defend Napoli in a low block and for a period of time, we struggle to break it down. We eventually figured it out because we had to. Pretty much every opponent we played against, big or small, was defending against us in a low block. But as we saw in the group stage, we are more than capable of playing through the press with our ability to move the ball quickly. Once you get past that initial press, you're playing in space and that's where Cavada and Osimen are most dangerous. Another thing to look out for is Frankfurt are very direct in their attack and they like to attack through the middle of the park. That is why Kolomwani is not only a goal machine this season, but also an assist machine as well. He has 15 goals and 14 assists in all competitions. When he gets the ball, he can either look to shoot or he can turn provider. Goza will look to play the ball forward to Lindstrom and Kolomwani. Only Kolomwani has more assists than Goza does in this Frankfurt squad. In addition to Lindstrom, Kamada is another goal-scoring threat. He has 13 goals in all competitions, and he leads the team with 3 goals in the group stage. Meanwhile, Tuta and Ndika are athletic, pacey defenders, so they seem very well-equipped to handle Osimen and Kvaraschelia. But for me... Cavada is a wild card because no one is equipped to handle his unpredictability. Finally, what concerns me the most is that Frankfurt have a devastating counterattack. I think our style of play makes us particularly vulnerable to the counterattack. I was talking to David about this on Twitter from the Forza Napoli Press account. He commented on our three takeaways piece with a question about our defense being a little bit shaky lately. We've only conceded two goals in our last seven matches, but our XGA was 4.4, which suggests that we probably should have conceded more. But if you average that 4.4 over the seven games, it's only 0.63, so still less than one goal a game. Our attack is so prolific that even if we did concede that one goal a match, we'd probably still win those matches. So defensively, I think we're doing okay, but I completely agree with David's comment that we look especially susceptible to the counterattack. By the way, my favorite moment in that Sassuolo match was when Laudienta intercepted Cavada's short corner and broke the other way. We had two guys back, Lobotka and Elmas, but seven of the other eight outfield players 
all sprinted back at the same time. The only one who didn't was Matteo Politano, but I thought that was incredible, and it really showed how much these players all want to win. Okay, for my prediction, I am going to go with a 2-2 draw. For Napoli, I have to give the goals to Osiman and Cavada, and I'll give the Frankfurt goals to Colomani and Kamada, so I'm pretty much going with all the likely goal scorers. Mario Goza gave an interview in the build-up to this match where he said he thinks the tie will be decided at the Maradona, and I tend to agree. I think if both of these teams play their own game, and I have no reason to believe that either of them won't do that, then this could be a very open match, and therefore we might see a lot of goals. I'm really looking forward to the tactical battle in the middle of the park. Both of these clubs have very strong spines. We have Meret, Kim, Lobotka, and Osimen, while Frankfurt have Trapp, Ndika, Goza, and Kolomwani. I think this tie could well come down to who wins that midfield battle, but as we talked about in part one, it could also come down to moments of brilliance. Either way, I think this will be the most entertaining tie in the entire round, even with Bayern playing PSG and Liverpool playing Real Madrid. Now, if we were not playing at the Deutsche Bank Park, I might have picked a Napoli win, but Frankfurt have such an incredible fan base, so I think it's going to be very difficult for us to win this first leg. That is another thing these two clubs have in common. They've both endured decades of suffering, so like Giovanni Simeone coming on for the final five minutes of a match, when you've been starved of something and you're finally given a taste, you really relish the moment. Both fan bases travel really well too. In Napoli's case, they travel really well when they're permitted to travel. This season, they haven't been permitted to travel a whole lot, both in the Champions League and in Serie A. But I am looking forward to seeing what kind of TIFO the Frankfurt fans come up with. And of course, at the Maradona, I cannot wait for that Champions League anthem. Okay, that is where I will leave it. I hope you enjoyed the match, and I hope you enjoyed this preview. If you did, please give us a rating and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. That always helps. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. Also, be sure to check out all of the different Napoli clubs that are popping up around the world. There is now a Club Napoli Sydney, which you can find on Facebook at Club Napoli Sydney Azzurra. Our good friend Henry Bell started the Napoli Club Glasgow in Scotland. And then, of course, there are so many clubs in North America now, and they continue to grow. Napoli Club Toronto has been doing a great job promoting all of these clubs and helping new clubs open. They're really paying it forward. I think they got help from Phil and the Napoli Club Philly when they started. And now we have Napoli Club New York, Tri-State, D.C., Cincinnati, and so much more. So be sure to check out all of those clubs and follow and like everything that they are putting out. I will be back soon to review the Frankfurt match and to preview our next match in Serie A, which is against Empoli. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.